Let's open the Word of God to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And by the direction of the Lord and His blessing today, let's trust for a change of pace and consider a historical chapter of the New Testament that records part of our brother Paul's evangelistic endeavors in the Roman world. Acts, the 16th chapter. Some of you are memorizing this chapter right now, so I hope that this is extra special to you. The young people have recently made a study on the Great Commission. I hope that it's extra special to you because of that. We are studying the role of faith in salvation. I hope that it's extra special because of that. This is why I'm preaching it. We are in the middle of Romans chapter 10 in our ordinary expositional preaching, and I hope that this is useful toward that end as well. Our brother just prayed that this is true history. It's the recorded acts of the apostles. It's God's story of what he's done in the affairs of men. It's more important than the three ships that left Portugal to come to the United States. Uh, We want to be thankful for the history that's recorded here. Much of the stuff that you read or hear about in history books is established on less evidence than what we have here. This was written immediately after the events, and it could have been overthrown and proven to be false in the very beginning. But there was a whole, there were congregations scattered throughout all of Asia Minor and Greece at that time that knew these things to be true. And so they have continued on to this day. And we believe it because it's in the Word of God. And we believe it by the fruit that this book has borne in many nations of the earth over the last 400 years. Is the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, personal in his pursuit of his sheep? Does he care about each one of his sheep? Does he care about you, individually considered? Oh, he does. I appreciate those of you last Sunday and in this past week that told me you appreciated a very minor point from the preaching of Acts chapter 9, and that is when the Lord addressed the man that was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, he called him by name. And when he sent Ananias to lay hands on him and restore his sight and to baptize him, he told him exactly the street where he was. And I appreciate the fact that you understood just how much the Lord knew about Saul of Tarsus. And he knows as much about you. All the hairs of your head are numbered. That is an incredible statement of knowledge about you. There is no one else on earth that has any proximity to that level of knowledge about you, nor do they want to know the number. And see, that really hurts us all. But the Lord wants to know the number, and He knows the number. And though a sparrow falls, the Lord is in complete government of that falling sparrow, and ye are of more value than many sparrows. The six primary persons in this chapter are Paul and Timothy, Luke and Silas, and Lydia and the jailer. And they're all individuals, and they all have a different story. And we'll touch on some of them 
and we hope that it will be profitable for us. The main thing that I'm going to get to and that we want to be thankful for is that a vision appeared to Paul in the night to move him away from Asia Minor. He tried to go south into Asia Minor proper. He tried to go north into Bithynia on the edge of the Black Sea. And the Lord said no to both directions. Because he was coming from the east, there was only one direction left. And that was to continue west. And he continued west and ended up in Troas on the edge of the Aegean Sea. And there a vision appeared to him to propel him across that Aegean Sea into Europe. You say, well, that's a minor distinction in the world. You better be thankful for that distinction in the world. That the gospel came through Europe to these United States. And that you've heard it and that you've believed it. Two things were necessary for you to believe the gospel. The gospel had to be preached to you. And God had to open your heart to believe it. Just like he did Lydia. And in the passage that I've quoted so many times from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The gospel came west. And we want to be so thankful for that. Remember. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, and believed on in the world. And then Jesus was received up into glory. This is an incontrovertibly great fact that is unknown without the revelation of Scripture. Let's begin through this 16th chapter. Paul is on his second evangelistic trip recorded for us in the Acts of the Apostles. I sent a map to you at 6 o'clock this morning because I was grieved that I hadn't given you more help in your preparatory email to understand the names of these places and their location since you're not familiar with them. For the first 50 years, everyone that read the Bible knew about these places. When they read the word Asia, they didn't think of Japan like you do. When they read the word Asia, they knew that it was a small piece of land at what is today in modern Turkey at its western end. And these cities like Troas and Philippi, these were known places that they would have understand the distances traveled. They would have understand turning north to go into Bithynia. They would have understand turning left, coming out of Phrygia to go into Asia. You don't understand those things, so the map is helpful. And that's why I sent it to you. There are historical chapters in the Bible where just to get a view of what the apostle did is wonderful. This particular trip began in Jerusalem because the apostle Paul and Barnabas had come down, I'm using it in the way we use it, from Antioch of Syria, the 300 miles or so to Jerusalem for the great council at Jerusalem about whether Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Once that decree was issued by the apostles and elders that gathered together for that assembly, Paul and Barnabas, along with two men from the church at Jerusalem, Judas and Silas, four in total, went back up to Antioch because it was there, they were commissioned by this council to carry this letter to the Gentile churches to tell them they didn't need to keep the law of Moses like that. They didn't need to keep circumcision. So he comes back to his home church. There he has a falling out with Barnabas. So Barnabas falls by the wayside. Judas wants to go back to his home church in Jerusalem, which he does. That leaves Paul and Silas, and they continue on 
And they come to Derby. And so here we go in the first three verses of Acts 16. Lord, help us to wisely manage our time. The first three verses. Then came he to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. But his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. So many things could be said, and I'll try to say just a few. When you read the words Derby and Lystra, if you haven't read Acts 14 recently, then you forget that Paul had been to these places already and preached the gospel, and thus most likely the conversion of Eunice and Lois to the truth of Jesus Christ in bringing Timothy up to be a faithful disciple that they discovered when they returned. But Paul was stoned and left for dead at Lystra. If you read Acts chapter 14 for some background information to appreciate this. Now I want to tell you about the men that have brought you the gospel. If you were stoned in a city, would you go back there a couple years later to preach to them again? Paul would. Paul did. And you're the beneficiary of that. Give God the glory for these men. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness preached unto the Gentiles. Paul was crazy. What a good crazy. What a holy crazy. What a consecrated crazy. He was accused of that numerous times in the New Testament. He said, if I be, if he, if I be beside myself, is it not for your cause? Is that wonderful? I know everyone's calling me crazy. And if I am crazy, it's for you. Amen. Wonderful. Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and there was a certain disciple there. That's Timotheus. You know about Timothy. Good things happened, and he became Paul's favorite ministerial understudy. He said, I have no other man like-minded in Philippians chapter 2 about this man, Timothy. His mother and his grandmother had taught him the truth of the worship of Jehovah and the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and had taught him the scriptures so that Paul could write later in 2 Timothy chapter 3.15, Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures from being a child. Since he was a little child, he'd been taught. But he was born into a mixed family. An unconverted father that was still a Greek. So much a Greek that he hadn't even circumcised Timothy, though his mother would have wanted him circumcised desperately. A broken family when it came to spiritual truth and religion. But that doesn't matter to the God of heaven. Out of that family came Timothy, one of Paul's favorites. He was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Two cities, congregations, saints of God said good things about Timothy. And Paul, in verse 3, would have him to go forth with him. He wants to add Timothy to his ministerial companions that are traveling with him on this second trip. It's Silas at the time. Now it's Timothy. So there's three of them to be four shortly. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. A good reputation is your goal. It is to be sought more than riches. According to Proverbs 22 and verse 1, 
And Timothy had that by two churches. What is your reputation? And is it such that if an apostle were to visit us, everyone would be telling that apostle? You didn't fudge long to apostles. Most of them knew about Ananias and Sapphira from chapter 5 of this book where they had fudged about a gift that they had given and they fell dead in the church at Jerusalem. So you told the truth. And an apostle was very discerning and highly demanding. And so how would you have passed if the church had told Paul about you? Which was well, well reported of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. It's one thing to have the world's favor. You know how easy that is? That's like falling off a log. Because if you can't outperform the world, you are a total loser. But, in order for you to get the praise of the saints of God in an age of persecution, you would have to have shown some great faith and performance. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. Paul wanted him. I want to point out something right here. Paul made a good choice, and we know that because of the way it turned out. But Paul made a good choice because the Lord was with him and he was very wise. The ministry is not a choice that Timothy made. Notice it didn't say that Timothy said, I, I want to go with you. The ministry is not what men choose for themselves. It's what God chooses for them. And God makes that choice known to them by another minister. Paul would have him to go forth with him. It does. It's the opposite of Timothy wanting the excitement of traveling the world and pretending I'm serving the Lord. You know, so many youth do that in so many churches they have these little cruises and little tours where you can go to Mexico, go to Africa, go to the Caribbean and other places and build little shacks and stuff like that. Make yourself feel really good. And you can sign up for it and so forth. But this is Paul choosing a man with a great reputation that was full of faith from two women full of faith that he knew would be useful to him. And he was certainly right because through the rest of the New Testament, we read about his usefulness to the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul has in his hand a decree from the Council of Jerusalem saying that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. But he gets to Derby, he meets Timothy, he ordains Timothy, and he takes the decree, puts it in his left hand, and takes a knife in his right hand, and circumcises Timothy. And that is the wisdom of our brother Paul. The wisdom is not, wisdom is not black and white. Any Pharisee can make up black and white rules. And I have met so many Pharisees in my life that would have said, well, this is where I put my foot down. I just got back from the Council of Jerusalem and Nobody's going to be circumcised like this. But Paul circumcised Timothy because Timothy was half Jew and Timothy was going to be preaching to Jews and Timothy was going to be preaching in an area where people knew him, that his father was a Greek. And for those reasons, there was no doctrinal issue at stake right here. The issue at stake was how much would his reputation be hurt by the Jews knowing he wasn't, cir knowing he wasn't circumcised, Paul circumcised him. You say, well, I can't see that distinction that's why you're not wise yet. But keep working on it. Amen. And it's not something to laugh about in this respect. Wisdom is difficult to achieve. 
through desire, a man separateth himself and intermeddleth with all wisdom. Proverbs 18.1 Because when doctrine was at stake, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul had his second other ministerial understudy with him, whose name was Titus. And he would not circumcise him because it was a doctrinal issue. He didn't care if he offended the false teachers that were infecting the church at Jerusalem with Jewish legalism. He did not care. He wouldn't circumcise Titus. He did circumcise Timothy. You say, I still can't see the difference. The Apostle Paul said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some, but I will never be made anything to a false teacher. To those under the law, I became as under the law. To those without law, I became as without law. Oh, Lord, teach us such wisdom. Instead of wanting to make everything black and white and beat everybody that's on the wrong side of the line, there are things black and white, and there are many things not black and white. And I'll take, I believe, anything you can make black and white, and I'll show you it isn't black and white. You bring me the Sabbath law, and I'll show you that I will have mercy and not sacrifice regarding the Sabbath law. And on and on we could go. Wisdom is greater than black and white rules. Because life is constantly changing, and there are so many factors involved in every situation. The Lord Jesus Christ would say, judge not by appearance, but judge righteous judgment. By appearance, Timothy shouldn't have been circumcised. By righteous judgment... He should have been circumcised, and he was. Verses 4 and 5. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. The apostle and Silas, apostle Paul, and Silas and Timothy are now bringing forward the decrees from Jerusalem. No, you don't have to be circumcised. Don't commit fornication. Don't eat meat offered to idols. Don't eat meat strangled. Don't eat blood with your meat. And so you'll do well. Don't worry about the rest of the stuff the Jews want to press on you. It doesn't have a thing to do with salvation. Salvation's entirely by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were established in the faith. And they increased in number daily by being established in the faith. Gentiles would then be more open to joining, knowing that they didn't have to abide by the ridiculous laws of the Jews. City by city, they've been to Derby, been to Lystra, Iconium. They're going back through the cities where there were churches that they'd established, presenting them the decrees, you don't have to keep the laws of Moses in order to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. That was a heresy that came out of Jerusalem. Rejoice. Go in peace, you uncircumcised Gentiles. Verses 6 through 8. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, central Turkey, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, that is not Russia and the Ukraine, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. If you look at your map or any map, and for those of you watching or listening to this later, I'm sorry, but you might want to get a map of Paul's second evangelistic trip 
you can see that Phrygia and Galatia are regions in the central part of Turkey between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And so coming through them, after leaving Derby and Lystra, he preaches throughout Phrygia and all the region of Galatia and is heading west toward the Aegean Sea. And he, he tries to go south into Asia. And that's Asia proper. Just that small area right there was called Asia Minor. It's been called Asia Minor for a long time, well before this. Before the Romans, it was called Asia. Right there. He tries to go south, and the Holy Spirit forbids him from doing so. So he tries to turn north to go up there to Bithynia, a region bordering the Black Sea. And the Lord again keeps him from doing so. The preaching of the gospel is a privilege to do it, and the hearing of the gospel is a privilege to hear it. And God determines. Now there is, in the will of God, and in the sovereign government of God, the faithfulness of ministers involved as well. But God will get His gospel to those that He chooses to get it to at the right time. I want to tell you something about Asia. There were people that died in Asia over the next couple of years that didn't hear preaching from Paul's mouth. But do you know what the Bible says? In a few years after that, everyone in Asia had heard the gospel by Paul. Isn't that something? Sometimes people wonder, why didn't I hear the gospel earlier? Or why didn't I hear more of the truth earlier? That's God's timing. And we want to be submissive to it. If we were at fault, then we should confess our sins. But after that, it is still the sovereign government of God because your sins do not overrule His sovereign government. It's very comforting to know that that area of Asia, that's where the seven churches of Asia were. Look at them. Some of them are listed there. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Ephesus. And there was Philadelphia in there. Those were the seven churches of Asia the book of Revelation addresses. The apostle Peter would write these same places. He mentions it in the first verse of 1 Peter chapter 1. But the apostle Paul is going to come back and spend a couple years in Asia at Ephesus. You know he was at Ephesus. And he was at Laodicea. And he wrote epistles to both churches, Ephesus and, and to Colossae and other and cities. You want to know that he did get back to Asia, but the Lord's timing is in charge of all of it. Listen, there's a man that needs to be saved by the gospel, and there's a woman that needs to be saved by the gospel. And they're not going to be benefited directly if Paul turns south or north at this time. And so he doesn't. And he ends up down at Troas. Now, if you can look at your map, you can see that the highlands of Turkey are elevated. And so coming down to Troas, though he's heading west and actually northwest from Phrygia and Galatia, He's coming down in altitude, which the Bible says over and over again, as it says down and up, contrary to the way that we use those words. We would say he went over to Troas, but he went down to Troas because it's a coastal town at sea level. And that is the end of verse 8. So we come to verse 9. The Holy Spirit is so much in charge of the preaching of the gospel. No, it's not time for Asia to hear it. No, it's not time for Bithynia to hear it. And yet I can find Bithynia in 1 Peter 1.1. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Just to look at the whole scope 
of the New Testament. So we come to verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Paul tried to go south into Asia. That's what he wanted to do. Paul tried to go north into Bithynia. That's what he wanted to do. That's where he thought the gospel should go next. But the Lord had a different goal in mind, and that was to go west. And so the vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia, another continent. Separated by two straits that run from the Aegean Sea up to the Black Sea. And that's what you had to cross to go from Europe into Asia. Another continent, another country, another language. Paul had chosen that he would stay in Turkey, what we would call Turkey today. But the Lord said, through a man. How many men? A stadium full of men? A large church with 500 members sitting in the pews saying, we need a pastor? There stood a man of Macedonia. Now he used the plural, come over into Macedonia and help us. Because there was more than the jailer. And I'm not saying that man was the jailer, but I want you to remember from Psalm 87, this man, that man, this man, and this man are mentioned by the Lord. Using a singular collective noun. And there's power in collective nouns that you get it individually considered and you get it collectively considered for the whole group. There stood a man of Macedonia, the northern half of Greece, the home of Philip and Alexander that brought the Macedonians against the Persians. The Macedonians were the prime core fighting force of the Greek empire from the northern half of the nation of Greece. Come over into Macedonia and help us. They needed to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from the foolishness both of Jewish tradition and pagan religion. Lord, thank you for sending the gospel west into Europe. Now look at the zeal of these men. And after he had seen the vision, the vision appeared to one man, singular, male, personal pronoun, he. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. Now that isn't Timothy, that's Luke. And you've just been introduced to Luke by a little two-letter plural pronoun, we. You just met Luke. You say, I want to know more about him. Luke didn't want you to know more about him. Luke wanted you to know that he was writing Theophilus to tell him the things most surely believed among us. But this physician laid down his hospital assignment, laid down his bag, and accompanied the Apostle Paul to preach with him. Because the text tells us, after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Luke was a preacher of the gospel, and if you look at the other references to Lucas in the New Testament, you can know that, as he was the beloved physician and friend and companion of the Apostle Paul. Notice the zeal of good men, and be thankful that the apostles had such zeal. When the Lord gave Paul direction, immediately we endeavored. 
We made every effort to get our tickets and get across that Aegean so that we could get into Macedonia and preach the gospel to them because we had assuredly gathered, because that was the means God used. And are you as assuredly instructed when God gives you something in writing? Luke didn't get it in writing. Luke got it the next morning by a verbal confession from the Apostle Paul that he had seen a vision the night before, which is why I will periodically preach, as I have recently to you, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Second Peter 1.19 You have it in writing. When you see in God's Word something that you ought to be doing, do you immediately endeavor to do that? Do you put forth the effort to do that? Or are you unlike the Apostle Paul? Lord, help us to be more like him. We assuredly gathered. We looked at the facts. That's where the Lord wants us. He doesn't want us in Bithynia. He doesn't want us in Asia. We've had a vision. We're here in Troas. He's trying to propel us across this water. We're going. When you're looking for God's wisdom and it comes to you, and it's in God's Word, and He speaks to you from His Word or through preaching or through a song that's based on God's Word, go with it. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia and the next day to Neapolis. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. If you look at your map, you can see them crossing the Aegean Sea. They certainly didn't cross it that way because they came with a straight course to Samothracia, which is that island halfway between Neapolis and Troas. It is six by eight miles, and it's a rocky post. Uh, it's a rocky island that sticks well up out of the water and can be seen for a long distance. And so it says we came with a straight course. You wouldn't go with a straight course. not with the. They didn't have GPS back then, guys. They weren't carrying iPhones or anything like that, but they saw Samothracia. They stopped there, and the next day, they ended up in Neapolis. As you can see, on the mainland of Europe, in the nation of Greece, and they quickly found the city of Philippi, named after Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon. It was a chief, the chief city of that part of Macedonia, so it was a major city, and it was a colony, meaning it was established by Rome for Roman citizens, and it practiced Roman law which is stuck here by the Holy Ghost, just giving us a little tidbit of information before we find out that that law came into play, even though it was violated for 12 hours, wasn't it? So we come to the next verse. And if the pace bothers you too slow or too fast, I'm sorry. Verses 13 through 15. So they're in Philippi. What do they do? They abide certain days waiting for the Lord to open them an opportunity. While they wait for the Lord to open them a door of opportunity, they use the means at their disposal. They know that the only God worshipers are going to be doing something on the Sabbath day. So we start in verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. When she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
Come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. The Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, there is going to be worship taking place. uh, Monotheistic worship of one God, the Lord Jehovah. Though this was a Roman colony, which meant that it had mostly Roman citizens that were pagans, for whatever reason, and I'm giving you that as the reason, there wasn't a synagogue. And so instead they gathered on the Sabbath, instead of at the synagogue, out by a riverside. And these were worshipers of God. Lydia was a worshiper of God. The jailer was not. We are shown two different categories of conversion right here. One, where a woman had been worshiping God. And she's out there where the Apostle Paul would gather on the Sabbath, meaning this was Jewish worship of Jehovah, to the best of their understanding. And so that's where Paul, Luke, and Timothy, and Silas went and sat down and spake unto those women. And among those women that came out to pray that day was a certain woman who was from Asia, from the city of Thyatira, which John would address in the first three chapters of Revelation. She was a seller of purple. She was a businesswoman. And she was there in Philippi, and her name was Lydia. She worshipped God. And she heard the joyful sound. You know, we sang this morning, we have heard the joyful sound. And what was the joyful sound Paul got to say? The one you sang. Jesus saves! You know, it's not those animal sacrifices that are made in Jerusalem. You don't even have a synagogue here in Philippi. You that worship Jehovah, don't you feel totally left out? But I want to tell you the truth. And he preached Christ to them. There wouldn't have been a baptism if he hadn't preached the Lord Jesus Christ to Lydia. She got to hear that there was a fulfillment of every lamb, every ox, every sacrifice, every drop of blood, that there was now one priest, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, that there were no more priests on earth that had a ministry, that this priest was from Judah instead of from the tribe of Levi because he was king and priest. And he preached Christ to Lydia. And she attended to the things that Paul spoke, though she wouldn't have heard them before, because the Lord opened her heart. There is an operation of grace that is in addition to regeneration. We understand about Lydia that she was regenerated before she ever met Paul because she worshipped God. She was driven to come out here by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And the Lord opened her heart. The Lord has to open our heart to see about anything valuable from His Word. He has to open our eyes. David would pray in Psalm 119 and verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The heart here is the affectionate attention of her spirit and mind, which was turned to the truth of the Lord. Jesus had said in John chapter 6, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Well, he drew her. And they shall all be taught of God. John 6, 45. And whosoever is taught of God comes to me. And Lydia was taught of God. Her heart was opened. And she turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and attended to the things that Paul preached. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And in loving kindness have I drawn you. I have turned you and you are turned. If you repent, it's because... God grants repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. 
2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. There are no human means that you can employ to get a man in the flesh to turn. And there's no human means that you can employ by yourself to get a man in the spirit to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord enables by drawing that heart, opening the mind, and letting the truth come in and be seen. God chooses to sanctify us through the Spirit, and He chooses us to believe the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and they're two separate things, and we need both of them. Oh Lord, don't close our eyes to anything, because He's able to close the heart and close the eyes as fast as He opens them. And he's closed them before. Lord, do not do that to us. Look at the look at Simon Peter. When do you think Simon Peter was born again? After the resurrection? No? Okay. After he was saved at sea when he said, Lord, save me. Doesn't that sound like a salvation experience? When was Simon Peter born again? Before Jesus ever called him to be an apostle. But do you know what Jesus said when Simon Peter said these words? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter's heart was opened for a short period of time because he got to hear the words, Get thee behind me, Satan, shortly. But for a short period of time, he saw clearly that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah and the Son of God in fullness. And so while there was all this debating going on as to who Jesus was, Peter had the answer. The Lord did that for Lydia. You know, Jesus once, and you've heard this so many times, but I I want you to understand it in context of Lydia. Jesus looking about at those that were hearing him preach and realizing that it was the publicans and the harlots that were believing him And it was the Pharisees and the scribes that were rejecting him. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in thy sight. It is the work of God. That's comforting to ministers who understand it properly. They ought to be diligent and they ought to be faithful to the doctrine because they can cost God's people their practical salvation and their conversion according to 1 Timothy 4.16. But the real issue of opening hearts and opening eyes and opening minds is the Lord's. It's frustrating at times, knowing how wonderful the truth is, how plainly we present it at times, and how few believe it. It's in the Lord's hands. It doesn't say that anyone else of the women that came out there believed that day. It just tells us that a certain woman named Lydia did. But it does say about more that may not have come out that day, her whole household. When she was baptized and her household. Now for those of you that haven't debated with Presbyterians or others before, here they go. A Presbyterian sees the word household and gets so excited they can't stand it. Their loins are loosed. Because they've got the word household being baptized, and you know as well as I do that there was a nursery in Lydia's home. She had had twins just a few months earlier. And so the twins are brought out, and the Apostle Paul sprinkles a little water on them in their precious christening gowns that they had picked up in Thessalonica in a trip there for shopping. 
and say you're making fun of Absolutely I am. They're ridiculous. They don't have a clue about the doctrine of baptism. There is, no, there is no word or an indication or a hint in the Bible that infants ought to be brought to Jesus for baptism. There isn't a hint in the Bible about sprinkling water on people's head and calling it a baptism. So how do they argue? The word household right there is how they argue. And they've got it twice in this chapter, so I want to give it to you in this chapter, never to be led astray by them. The apostle would never baptize anyone that hadn't brought forth works fruit, uh, 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 repentance and works to prove that they were truly faithful, that we didn't truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostolic command of the Great Commission was, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Belief has to come before baptism. And there is no such thing as a godfather or a godmother that does the believing for babies as they have to make up and add to the word of God to justify their love of Roman Catholicism and the Pope. That's why they're Presbyterians. They couldn't tell the Pope to go to hell. And Baptists have always told the Pope to go to hell. Because we don't believe they're damnable heresies. And they're called doctrines of devils in the Bible. First Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 through 9. Describe the doctrines of Rome as the workings of Satan. With lying signs and wonders. Lord help us. Household. She had servants. She had domestics. She had helpers. She may have had a sister. We don't know who was in her household. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I can tell you one thing. The ones that were baptized all had an active conscience because the apostle would never have baptized anyone without an active conscience. And so we have to go on. Verses 16 through 18. The devil is active and the devil hates baptisms. When someone is baptized sincerely under the approval of the Apostle Paul, it is a sincere act of repentance and commitment of discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you that when Jesus Christ came up out of the water, He was immediately driven into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And so we have here the devil on the scene in Philippi because... There are inroads being made into the darkness and blindness and ignorance with which he had held the nations for thousands of years. But upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The apostle Paul loosed himself from Troas in a ship, came to the island of Samothracia the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Praise God. Divination is foretelling the future or discovering the unknown by supernatural means. Satan had possessed this young girl by one of his devils which gave her this supernatural power. It wouldn't have been perfect. She would have only been able to foretell the future on occasion. 
just like Gene Dixon and other devil-possessed people that have pretended to be prognosticators in our own society. Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform some limited signs and wonders, but then they quickly reached a point where they went to Pharaoh, pulled him aside, and said, that is the finger of God. And we don't have it. See? And you want to remember this. Satan's devils always knew Jesus Christ, his apostles, and of course, any frauds. Because if you go to Acts chapter 19, you can read about the frauds that tried to cast out devils in a man by the name of Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And it didn't work very well. I could show you from the Bible that anything to do with foretelling the future or trying to find the unknown by supernatural means is an abomination to God. There is only one source of the future. There is only one source of the unknown, and it is God himself. And the way the devil ever knows anything is because God let him know it. And God's let him know this about the future, and this one's right. Art thou come to torment us before our time? The Lord, the devil, knows that he's going to be destroyed forever in the lake of fire. Now you say, these devils were telling the truth about Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. Of course they were. They told the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on earth. They would run and fall at his feet and worship him and say, We know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. When the Gadarene did that, my brethren, that wasn't the Gadarene. The Gadarene didn't know all those things. But the devils in the Gadarene knew it, and they worshipped him who is their Lord. Does that comfort you at all? You don't have to be afraid of the devil. You just need to resist him. The victory is already final, complete, and total. And he'll be cast into the lake of fire. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we go forward. We don't want to give him a place in our lives. The Bible tells us not to. We want to resist him and he'll flee from us because Jesus has won the victory. These men are the servants of the Most High God. Now, that'd be good once or twice, but she just kept it up day after day because she wasn't there to help them. She was beside herself with these devils inside her or a devil inside her, an evil spirit that was provoking her to say these things. But I want you to notice something that's dangerous, and it's always been dangerous. The last clause of verse 16 says, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. When there's a lot of money involved in religious biz, that is in a religious business, men get upset when the truth is preached that's going to cause their income to decline. The priests of Rome have long hated their indulgences to be ridiculed by preachers of the gospel so that payments are not made for candles and for fees and for masses to be said on behalf of the dead. It steals a great source of revenue. And here we have a great source of revenue. We have some men who have come together and have created a business of using this devil-possessed young girl damsel to pretend that she can foretell the future. And the only times that she could do it was when the Lord gave her leave. And the Lord's given her leave right now to say, these men are the servants of the Most High God. And they show unto us the way of salvation. 
it's not through a pagan Roman temple, and it is not through the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It is through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, that's not all said by her recorded here, but that's what they were preaching, and that is the way of salvation. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to verse 19. Here's the last section we'll cover before our break. Verse 19 through 24, I read to you. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. In verse 19, her masters, an LLC had been formed around this devil-possessed damsel because she had masters that had formed some sort of a partnership, maybe an S-corp, in order to make money from exploiting this devil-possessed girl. And they saw the hope of their gains was gone because immediately the girl was acting normal. Praise God when the Lord Jesus Christ gets into a person's life and they start acting normal. When the devil's pushed out and the Lord Jesus takes over like the Gadarene. Their hope of their gains was gone. So what do they do? They're going to get the political power involved to persecute them. So they caught Paul and Silas and drew them to the marketplace under the rulers. And this has been a course of practice for those that hate the truth for a long time. And that's to involve the political arm of the government to persecute. To commit murder would have exposed themselves to the judgment of a Roman colony. But to try to slander them before the Roman government, and these must have been successful businessmen because the hope of their gains must have been sufficient for them to want to take this risk. And whatever the case... They were very effective in the few things they said in slandering Paul and Silas. So they bring them before the magistrates of their city in the marketplace where the leading men of the city or the city council would gather. And they accused them of being Jews. Now that by itself would get half the work done because the Jews were a stubborn, rebellious group of people based on the nationalism that they had for their own nation and so when they were in other nations, they were prone to cause trouble. If you go read the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, you will find there that the accusations made against them were confirmed to be true. That they were a difficult people and a rebellious people. And they were rebellious under the Roman government as well. And that's why that Roman war ensued. And that's why the Romans came into Palestine to subject that nation yet again after our Lord's ascension into heaven. These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. You know, our city is getting messed up because the city council has not done anything about these Jews because they're teaching customs that we as Romans shouldn't receive and we shouldn't observe. 
Now, what happens in a pagan city that is under decent government when it's the truth of Jesus Christ against the lies of the devil? What happens? The multitude rose up together against them. It will shock you how people will unify against the truth. Those who were once their enemies, whether you think of Pilate and Herod, or you think of others that you may know, they will band together and become good friends as long as their enemy is the same. And the multitude rose up together. You know, do you know what this multitude would have done if they had talked about raising the slightest tax to put a dam in a local river for more water for local farmers? How long would it have taken? You've never been to city council. It would have taken forever. They would have had to create a committee and a study and a council. And it would have gone on and on because of the differences they would have had. But there's no differences here. They rose up together against the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that or not? The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes, stripped them, and commanded to beat them. There wasn't even a trial. They didn't even get to speak for themselves. There weren't witnesses raised. This is Rome. Rome did not have laws like this. But they will do anything in their power to get rid of the preaching of Jesus Christ. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, the Jews had a limit of 40 because that was given by God in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So that when you check out Paul's resume in 2 Corinthians 11, he said that five times received I 40 stripes, save one. The Jews would go 39 stripes on the back just to make sure they hadn't broken 40. Weren't they scrupulous in their keeping of the law as they beat an apostle of their Messiah? Hello? Isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Oh, yes. We only, we're only going to beat this man 39 times for telling us about a man that rose from the dead, who's our Messiah, who fulfilled every prophecy of the Old Testament. But the Romans didn't have any such restriction. So, so Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, part of that resume as well, he says, beaten with stripes above measure. I'm thankful for Paul. Based on the way I view the New Testament, the emphasis the Lord put on this man over the other apostles, the way that this man was the apostle of the Gentiles, I have heard the gospel because of the apostle Paul. And I'm thankful for those stripes that he took. And he took them cheerfully and gladly. Do you know what he said after he gave his resume? Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. What a man. Many stripes, they threw him into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. That wasn't to protect Paul and Silas. That was not to let Paul and Silas get away. Who? Here's the jailer. He's a conscientious one. Having received such a charge from the magistrates, thrust them into the inner prison. He puts them in whatever sort of a dungeon he has for them and made their feet fast in the stocks. He locks their feet down 
their stripes are exposed, their backs are ripped open, and we're going to read about what they did there. And I hope that we can agree with John Newton, as long as we have the Lord Jesus Christ, prisons can palaces prove. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.